Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis. We will begin in Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, and then we will move on to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. This is the account of the heavens and the earth focusing upon Adam and his immediate children and descendants. And so we pick up the story after the creation of woman. We pick it up here in Genesis chapter 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. And down to verse 1 of chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. And with pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim 
and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Holy Father, we do come before you today humbly. We humbly seek to know you. We humbly hope to hear you. And we hope humbly want to be changed by your word. Open our ears so that we might hear you speak through your word. Open our eyes so that we might see your glory as it is found for us in the scriptures. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have looked for the last two weeks at the world that God declared to be very good. And yet we look at this world that we live in, the same world that was created by God, the same world that God declared six times was good and one time it was very good. And we look at the world around us and we say, you know, something's just not right. While there is glory, while there is majesty, while there is goodness in this world, there's a lot of things that are not good at all. And we ask ourselves the question, if we live in a world that God declared to be very good, why are there things that happen that definitely aren't? And today we come to the sad answer to that question is why are things the way they are? And so today we are going to look at that, at the answer to that question. And we'll begin to look at it as we kind of look our way through this story, this narrative, and then we'll come back and we'll look at the nature of temptation and sin. We'll look at the nature of God's holiness and we'll look at our, the nature of our need before a holy God. So we come to this, to this command that they have been given, the one prohibition that Adam and Eve had been given in the garden. They've been given every tree for food, everything that they needed to, to glorify God and to fulfill his commands they had been given. And they had been given one negative command, which was to not eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So what is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? We talked a little, little bit last week about this concept of a literary tool called a merism, M-E-R-I-S-M, a merism. And the, the thought behind that is the expression of two opposites to include everything in between. And so we have these two opposites of good and evil. And the knowledge of good and evil is a knowledge of moral and ethical systems, a knowledge of right and wrong, a knowledge of means by which to make decisions for good or for evil. And so what God had said is this tree is the tree of all ethical knowledge. So do we need to make decisions about right and wrong in our life? It's, this is what he's talking about. What is the knowledge of good and evil in our lives? Each of us have had to make decisions. Some of them are small decisions. Do we turn left or do we turn right as we're heading through town? Do we go around town or we go right up the middle, up 219, all the way up to the interstate? Sometimes we've made larger decisions. Who do we marry? Where do we work? Where do we live? This, that's the kind of the sum of ethical knowledge. And that is the knowledge that God said was in the tree. And we would think that that would be a good thing for humanity to have. But God says, I am your source of the knowledge of good and evil. I am the one who tells you what is right and what is wrong. And the choice to eat the tree was basically the choice to say, I make the decisions for myself what is right and wrong, or God makes the decisions for me 
what is right and what is wrong. And the decision had been made by God for Adam and Eve. You can eat every tree in the garden except for one. That is what is right and wrong for you. You are to take the boundaries of the garden and to expand it to cover the entire earth. That is what is right and what is wrong for you. And as long as you follow my ethical knowledge, as you follow what I tell you is right and wrong, there is life in following me. But in breaking my rules, there is death. And if you seek to declare yourself autonomous, if you seek to say that we as humans are smarter and wiser than God, God says the penalty for that is death. And so that is the situation into which God placed humanity. God has infinite knowledge of everything that happens. He is the only one that can truly see all the consequences, all the benefits of any decision that we make. And he knew that we could not handle that. And so he says, listen to me, trust me, have faith in me that I know what is good for you and live according to my commands. And so that is what God was commanding Adam and Eve to do. This was not just a prohibition from eating a a special tree in the garden. This wasn't some type of carrot on a stick that God was was placing before Adam and Eve so that if they grabbed the carrot, he could beat them with the stick. God, in his infinite knowledge, knew what was good for humans. And he says, this is what is good for you. And yet, I'm still going to give you the choice, the freedom to follow me or the freedom to follow yourself. And so, of course, we know how that turns out from what we've read. But they're placed in this perfect garden. They are given all the trees except for one for food. And into this perfect garden enters the serpent. Now, who is what is the serpent? Is this a just a snake that talks or is this something a little bit more? I think this is something a little bit more. If we were to turn to Revelation chapter 20, uh, verse um, two, we hear these words. He sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan and bound him for a thousand years. Now, we're not going to get into the nature of the binding for a thousand years, but what I want us to see here is this serpent that enters the garden is the same dragon that is defeated by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, at the end of time. Defeated at the cross, but defeated once and for all when he returns. This is no ordinary serpent. This is a signal that for some reason God has allowed Satan to enter into the garden. And here really is man's first failing. Remember, man was given the task of tilling and guarding the garden. And when something that did not belong in the garden came in, man's first failure was not kicking it out. That was man's job was to guard the garden. But instead of guarding the garden, he, man and woman enter into dialogue. Specifically, the female enters into dialogue with the snake. And he says, you know what? Didn't God deny you food from any tree in the garden? And Eve says, no, not any tree, but this one tree, and we're not even allowed to touch it. And of course, we see this twisting, even in Eve's mind, of God's initial command. He didn't tell them they couldn't touch it. He just told them they couldn't eat from it. And Satan says, well, you know, God's motives behind that are are not necessarily honest. He's trying to keep you from being like him. He's trying to be the only God in a world where you could be God's as well. 
Because he knows if you eat this, you're going to be a lot like him. You're going to be like him and equal to him. You'll have knowledge that he has. And God doesn't like competition. And so Eve hears that. She says, wow, I can get wisdom like God has. And not only that, this fruit looks really good. And I bet it tastes awesome. So she grabs the fruit. She takes a bite of it. And she turns and she gives it to her husband. We oftentimes have this thought that Adam was kind of absentee in this whole process. But he wasn't. Scripture tells us that he was right there with her. And as he's hearing this dialogue go on, here's here's Adam's second failing. He didn't step in and correct. He was the head, the leader in this family. Now, they were equal in being the images of God, but there was authority that Adam had in this family structure that Eve did not have. And as part of his authority role, he should have stopped this dialogue and corrected Eve and said, no, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This isn't right. God is good. He created us. He showed me everything that was wrong about my situation in this perfect world. And then he created you and gave you to me. He's not a God who's trying to keep something from us. He's giving us everything. Adam should have stepped in. Adam should have stopped this dialogue. And yet, what did he do? He, he allowed Eve to take the leadership role. He allowed the woman to take leadership in the family system and allowed her, followed her lead, took the fruit and ate of it himself. And we see that when they ate of the fruit, their innocence was gone. Remember at the end of chapter 2, they were naked and unashamed. And now they see that there's something broken about themselves. And they try to cover themselves up with these fig leaves, which fig leaves... Uh, from what I understand, are pretty big and would probably be enough to cover certain portions of your body, but not your whole body. So they sewed a couple of those together and and built for themselves loincloths. The point the point of their intimacy becomes the point of their shame. And so they they clothe themselves with these fig leaves and then they hear God walking in the garden and they hide. How do you hide from God? Of course, God asked them this question, where are you? And God knows good and well where they are. He asked them, what have you done? And God knows good and well what they've done. It's not that God is ignorant, but God is trying to lead them to confession. If we can be led to confess and repent of our sins, there's great joy in that. There's great freedom in confession. And so God, instead of just coming and swooping down upon them and pouncing upon them and and exacting full and total judgment right there upon Adam and Eve, he seeks to draw them towards confession. He seeks to draw them towards repentance. And of course they don't. They ignore. Adam says, well, you know, I heard you coming in the garden and I thought I'd hide from you. God says, why would you hide? We had fellowship. We talked one-on-one. You were used to walking in the garden with me and talking. Why would you hide from me? Did, did you sin? Did you do what I told you not to do? Did you eat of the fruit? And Adam, in all his glory and his wisdom and all this knowledge of good and evil, and he goes, no, it's her fault. You gave me this woman. It's her fault. Kind of indirectly saying it's actually your fault. Not the devil made me do this. You made me do this. If you hadn't given me this woman, I would not have sinned. If you hadn't, he takes this wonderful gift that he had been given that he, that he spouts poetry about at the end of the last chapter. 
And he throws her under the bus. Instead of the answer to what is not good in his life, it's not good that man be alone, all of a sudden she is now the source of all of his problems. Is what he's saying there. And indirectly he's saying, you gave her to me, you're the source of my problems. And so God says, okay, I'll play this game. He goes, Eve, why'd you do this? Well, the serpent did it. The serpent made me do it. Eve actually goes to God made me, or the devil made me do it. Man's third mistake, the male's third mistake, is he says, God, you made me do this. This is your fault. And he blames God for his very own sin. And so God does not question the serpent. God has already judged the serpent, cast him from heaven once. He knows the nature of the serpent. He doesn't have to question the serpent. And so he moves right into this curse. He says to the serpent, you'll crawl in your belly, you'll eat dust all of your life. Dust was a symbol of judgment and humiliation, not humility, but humiliation. And so Satan will be humiliated for all of eternity. And he says, I will put enmity between you and between the woman, between your offspring and between hers, and he will crush your head and and you will strike his heel. And we'll look at in a few minutes the the significance of the fact that crush and strike in verse 15 are the same word. The crushing happens to the head of the serpent and to the heel of the seed of the woman. He looks to the woman and he says, I will greatly increase your pain and childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. In other words, there's going to be pain in the family relationship for the woman. Yes, there will be physical pain in childbirth, but there will also be pain in child rearing. That word there is not merely physical pain. It talks about this emotional pain as well, pain of the heart. And so not only is there pain for the mother in bearing children, there's pain for the mother in raising children. And if you've ever raised children, if you ever talked to somebody who has, you know that the mothers feel the pain of their children's sin very heavily. They feel the pain of their children's failures very heavily. In fact, our culture takes advantage of this. Guys, you and I are off the hook, according to our culture. If our children are not successful in the world, it's the mother's fault. It's what our culture tells us. And so mothers drive themselves crazy trying to make sure that the science projects are done on time, to make sure that the book reports are done on time, to make sure that junior gets into the best preschools and junior gets into the best private schools and junior gets into the best colleges to the point that a lot of times mom's doing junior's homework. And Junior gets to college with absolutely no means of being able to succeed. And four years later, they pass him on through, and he ends up living in the basement playing video games. That's what our culture says. And so even our culture has abused this fact that women feel pain in childbirth. But it's not only with the parents or the children that women have issue with in the family system. It's with the husband. It says here, you'll have desire for your husband, but he will rule over you. This this relationship of mutual help and loving leadership turns into a relationship of attempted domination. The wife attempts to dominate her husband, but the the husband actually will be the one to dominate his wife. And this this is the loving leadership of creation gone wrong. You know, wives are told to submit to their husbands, but husbands are given the much larger, the much larger command to love your wives like Christ loved the church. Put aside that desire to rule your wife with an iron fist 
and love her like Christ loved the church. He sacrificed himself and gave himself so that the church might be presented to God holy and radiant. But that's a constant battle between husband and wife now. To Adam, he says, you listened to your wife and ate of the tree from which I commanded you. He said, cursed be the ground because of you. You're going to work. You're going to struggle. And yes, the ground will continue to give its food to you, but it's going to fight back. You know, we we joke about gardens, how, you know, you can go out, you plant your garden, you till it, you weed it on Monday. And if you wait till Wednesday to go back, all the all the good plants are dead because the weeds are there. There's there's a sense in which that's true. We constantly have to fight nature for our food. But then God takes it one step further and he says, you were called to have dominion over the earth. But now earth will have dominion over you because you were made from dust and to dust you will return. We're here for a moment. We're here for a short breath of time. And God says, you came from dust and to dust you will return. Now, there's a sense in which death is a grace. If we had to live in this broken world for eternity, it'd get either very depressing or we would be able to live out the full depth of our depravity. Because the longer we live, the smarter we get, the more you know, crafty we get in our own sin. So death is a, is a grace to us that it removes us from this broken world. It does put our, our souls in the presence of God, but death is still a curse because it shows that the earth now has dominion over humanity instead of humanity having dominion over the earth. So God pronounces these curses. Adam names his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. And we see the hope in the curse. We see part of the hope in the curse. If you read through the prophets, Isaiah is probably one of the clearest that you can see this. Prophets have this balance between judgment and hope. Judgment for sin, but hope that God will restore. What was humanity commanded to do? They were commanded to multiply, were they not? And yeah, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard. It's going to be painful. But Eve is now the mother of all living humans. She is our ultimate grandmother with all the infinite, however many numbers of greats she would put in between there. All of us are here because she still had the ability to bring forth life and women today still have the ability to bring forth life. And then God kicks them out of the garment or the garden. He covers them in a way that they cannot cover themselves and he guards them from the garden by putting the angel, the cherubim and the sword there flashing to protect them or to protect God's holy garden from fallen humanity. Interestingly enough, what's one of the first what's one of the first things that that Joshua meets as he enters the promised land? He enters an angel with a sword. And he says, "Are you for me or for our enemies?" He said, "I'm for neither. I am here for God to protect his place." And so the the guard the angel was still there. So as we look at this particular passage, I want us to look at three things. Number one, the nature of temptation and sin. Satan attacks Adam and Eve in four different areas. The first thing the serpent does is he emphasizes God's prohibition over his provision. He emphasizes what God prohibits over what God provides. 
I've already touched on this a little bit. They were given every tree in the garden for food except for one. Every plant, it tells us at the end of Genesis 1, every plant that was on the face of the earth was given to man for food. Except for one. And Satan comes in and instead of going, man, look at how much God has given you. Isn't it pretty bad that he just took this one little tree away from you? He goes, man, God denied you absolutely everything, didn't he? We have that today. I mean, there's rules that God has given us for living. Think of marriage. Marriage between one man and one woman or just faithfulness in marriage. God says, if you want to flourish in a marriage relationship, faithfulness is the key. But Satan says, oh, no, God's just trying to keep you from having fun. Go out and do whatever you want with whomever you want. He takes away from us the joy of what he has given us and only causes us to focus on what he has forbidden from us. And that's how he tempts us initially. The second thing he does is he reduces God's command to a question. Did God really say that? Are you sure you heard God right? Are you sure that that's what it really means in that passage when he says, don't do this? Are you sure? The third thing he does is he casts doubt on God's sincerity. God, God just wants to keep you from being smart. God just wants to keep you from having fun. God just wants to keep you from knowing what he knows. And then he denies the truthfulness of God's threat. He said, you won't surely die. You're not going to die. God, yeah, God just threatens and blusters. He's not actually going to carry out any of the punishments he gives you. And then isn't those, aren't those four things basically where our temptation comes from? You know, we read through the scripture and, and, and culture says something to us like, God can't really mean that. And God's just trying to keep you from having fun. Go out and hang out with whoever you want to. And God's not really going to do anything to you. We look around the world. We, we look at people who are Asaph in Psalm 73. He looked and said, I see the unrighteous and they, and they prosper. They don't get these curses or threats that God gives to them. And the world says, hey, look, God's an impotent God. Just go out and do whatever you want to because he's not going to do anything to you. Asaph says, then I entered the house of God and I saw that when God comes to judge the heavens and the earth, the unrighteous will get what's coming to them. And so we are tempted very much in the same way. But basically the nature of sin is not in being tempted. It's in yielding to the temptation and saying, I am smart enough to decide what's right and wrong for myself. Because every sin that we commit basically is the same sin that Adam and Eve committed there. If I am tempted to gluttony, let's say. I'm like, man, that food looks really, really good. And I know God says to only eat so much and not to make a pig of myself. But man, I know what's better for me. I'm going to eat all seven trips at that buffet. And God says, no, that's not good for you. And yet I do it anyway. I'm basically saying I know more about what's good for me than the one who created me does. And the nature of sin is arrogance and pride and a lack of faith and trust in God. And it leads to relationship alienation. It leads to an alienation in our relationship with God. Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. It leads to, leads to alienation in relationship with each other. 
There's this striving for authority. And it leads to a relationship of alienation with the world. Adam was dominated by the world. But why did they hide? And that brings us to the nature of God's holiness. Now, we all know the answer to why they hid. It's because they were naked and ashamed. But why would they be naked and ashamed? And it's the nature of this holy place in which they lived and the holy God in which they, with which they fellowshiped. We say that, but we don't understand it. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled with the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. They were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe is me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. What Isaiah is saying here, he's not saying, oops, I've kind of walked into the wrong room, and there's God, and I need to leave. He's saying this holy presence of God, the power of God, the goodness of God, the righteousness of God is like standing in the on the sun. In other words, this light, this heat, this holiness, this goodness is blazing forth from the throne of God. And Isaiah says, I deserve to be annihilated. That is the presence that Adam and Eve walked with in the cool of the morning and the cool of the evening. And that is the presence they hid from. Because they knew that God's holiness and their sin would not mix. They should be destroyed by the holiness of God. In the latest Spider-Man movie, the bad guy creates this weapon. And he fires it at one of his, one of his uh, uh, compatriots. And this blast of light comes out the end of the weapon. And there's just this pile of ash left of this man. That's what Adam and Eve feared when they hid from God. Because nothing sinful can stand in the presence of God. They did not hide just simply because they were naked and ashamed and they were uncomfortable with God. They were afraid of the judgment and the wrath of God. And that brings us to the nature of our need. In the midst of the curse, God gives this promise. He says, the seed of the woman. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. There is a constant battle between the serpent and the seed of the woman. And we'll see it work out through the, first, the rest of the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. And there's this, this picture of crushing of a head and crushing of a heel. And on the cross, Christ took the full weight of the holiness of God upon his human nature. So that we might stand in the shade of his righteousness. He stood upon the sun and took the brunt of that holiness, the destruction of that holiness in his human nature in the great mystery of without separating the divine nature of Christ from the divine nature of the Trinity. But in his human nature, he took the full brunt of God's holiness that Adam and Eve deserved, that you and I deserved. That destruction that they deserved, he took upon himself. And in being struck in the heel and having his heel crushed, he crushed the head of the serpent. 
He sealed the fate of the great dragon that still prowls this earth like a lion seeking to consume and devour who he will. So that we might stand in the coolness of the shade of Christ's righteousness. The righteousness that comes to those who have faith in the cross and the faith in the one who died on the cross as their only hope and savior before God. Folks, you and I profess to seek to be in the presence of God as followers of Christ. That is our hope that we will stand in the presence of God. Do we understand what that means? Do we understand the danger of that hope? The danger of that hope is we will stand in the presence of the same holy God that Adam and Eve hid from. The presence of the same holy God that Isaiah stood in his throne room and said, I deserve to die. And yet the seraphim comes from the altar. And he takes this coal. Seraphim is a flaming one. That's that's the title of the word. And the seraphim stand in the flame of God's holiness. And yet he still has to pick up this holy coal with a tongue. And he brings it to he brings it to Isaiah and he touches Isaiah's lips with it. And what do we expect to happen to Isaiah? Gone. But what happens? He's cleansed. He's made pure. He's made righteous. Jesus is that coal that comes from the altar of God, that place of sacrifice. And he reaches down into our unholy lives And he touches our hearts. And instead of being consumed, we are made righteous. We are made pure. And that comes through his work that is given to us by faith. Turning faith from ourselves and putting it on Jesus Christ. Turning faith from ourselves and seeking salvation before God with our own righteousness and putting in faith in his righteousness. So that we can stand protected in the presence of God so that we can stand righteous in the presence of God and feel the warmth of the sun, not the destructive power of it. The question that we are left with at the end of this chapter is whose seed are you? Are you the seed of the serpent? who is warring against God, who has faith in his own wisdom or faith in her own strength or faith in her own righteousness? Or are you the seed of the woman who has put your faith in the Savior whose heel was crushed so that he might crush the head of the serpent? And so that is the question I leave with you today. Whose seed are you? Let us pray. Our gracious God and Holy Father, We stand in awe of your holiness. We stand in fear of your holiness. We stand here with a desire to be in your presence, but with the knowledge that we could not survive that were it not for the shade of the cross. Lord, as we search our hearts to answer the question, whose seed are we? Bring us to a saving knowledge of you. Strengthen that belief that we have in you so that we might know the grace of the cross. We pray this in Christ's precious name. Amen.